This week on Life and Faith. True power necessarily involves an element of vulnerability in the sense that if I want to bring something into being in the world that will have any kind of life to it, the moment you create life, you take a risk. Why don't you have any Asian friends or black friends or poor friends or friends from the other side of the river in the western suburbs? My parents never had to worry about catching me out in anything because if I did something wrong, the clock was ticking and I would confess all. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. Now, what is the work of every human in the world? It's a huge question, and one that I hope doesn't immediately make you think of jobs or paid work. Now, if you've had any connection with CPX lately, you won't have been able to escape hearing us talking about Andy Crouch and his visit with us in September. And actually, if you know someone who wanted to make the Richard Johnson lecture this year but couldn't, It's now available on the Richard Johnson Lecture podcast. It's a great listen, Andy's work on technology is so rich and provocative, I think you'll love it. But Andy's work on technology is also just the latest of his books. There's plenty more just then, isn't there? And if you're interested in exploring more of Andy's work, there's so much more to discover. Yes, absolutely. Mm. He wrote a very influential book several years ago. It's called Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. And that book is all about human creativity and the call or the urge or the drive to make something of the world. So we can talk about art, sure, but also systems and science. So I suppose if you have ambitions to change the world, to change the way that we do things, to change culture, Andy argues in this book that you've got to make more of it. You've got to make more culture. And this might be some kind of answer to that what is the work of every human question. It's to create and to make culture. And I would even say that uh, culture making, when you read it, it's almost like a glimpse under the hood of the life we're looking for, which is Andy's book on technology. Because when I read the life we're looking for, I'm seeing culture making at work in it and and Andy's thoughts on what it means to create something and see the world in a particular way and then bring that to bear on whatever you happen to be looking at, in this case, technology. So it's kind of been born out of that earlier work. Mm. Well, while he was here, we thought we'd hear from Andy himself about that earlier work and why he thinks that culture making is such a human activity. Now, you did this interview just then, so how did you kick it off? Yeah, so I read Culture Making to prepare for this chat with Andy, and I noticed that he starts the book with this reflection on babies um, and what they're looking for in some ways when they first enter the world. And I thought, I swear I've read this before. <laughs> and it turns out that at the beginning of The Life We're Looking For, he also starts with a reflection on babies. And so I asked him, what's going on there? Why are you so interested in this? So Culture Making is my first book, and it's now 15 years old almost, uh, certainly 15 years old in terms of when I wrote it. And I just went back and reread it for the first time in a long time. I was like, oh, yeah, I was writing about babies then too, wasn't I? <laughs> so I've actually been thinking about the same thing. Why do I always like to write about babies? And, you know, I think partly I, I have had the great gift of being a father of two children. And, and it is, it's a world-rocking experience just to have this little creature show up in your life. So it, it maybe partly is just my ongoing awe. Uh, my children are now 22 and 25 years old. And the awe at this crazy thing that is human development. And maybe part of why I keep coming back to it, Justine, is um, 
we are so dependent. It's an icon, maybe to use a religious term to me, of our dependence that we begin. And for so long in childhood, unlike any other species, we spend longer in infancy and dependence on other older members of the community, you could say, than any other mammal, than any other creature. And yet, not just an icon of dependence and vulnerability, but an icon also of possibility and all the things that it turns out babies can do. I've never gotten over realizing that there was this total wrong turn in the modern era where we thought babies were not very smart (laughs) and were blank slates, you know? And that has been just completely disproven. Like, babies are amazingly cognitively sophisticated, actually, in what they're doing and attempting in a way, even while they can't do much. So I don't know. For me, it's just this um, elemental picture. Also, you know, I write about complex intellectual topics in some ways, and I really like to ground it in visceral reality. And babies just bring you back to basics. (laughs) So I guess that's why I keep writing about babies. I think in your work, you're always bringing back these questions of power and possibility back to the human and to the human calling. Hmm. And so I wonder if you can speak to us a little bit about image bearing. You know, what does that mean? And how does that relate with this idea of calling and and the purpose of, let's say, that little child who is newly born? Is there some sort of road that she needs to walk and grow into? Yeah, maybe part of why I think it's so important to attend to those early years and, you know, in some ways also the, the final years of a typical human life as well, in a sense, the dependent years, is they, it, it's a way of, um, I don't know if the word is inoculating ourselves, but defending against maybe, maybe a kind of a universal human dream, which is of escaping dependence. And this really relates to this idea of bearing the image, which is an idea of comes from the Hebrew scriptures, of course, that we are made in the image of God. And one of the fundamental dynamics of the human story is this question, what is the God that we want to be and be like? And there's this consistent stream or thread in the human story of saying, the God that we would want to be like would be very unlike us. In other words, this would be a God who's not dependent, a God who doesn't suffer, a God who is beyond limits. And of course, the classical philosophical, including Christian philosophical account of God says there is a way in which all those things are true of the ultimate source of the universe. But of course, the distinctively Christian idea, which has really captivated me, is if you want to really know what the true God is like, you actually have to look at a human being because we believe God became human, which is crazy. I mean, that's a crazy idea. And no one would have come up with it. Even in its, It has no direct antecedent even in its Jewish origin. It's only because of what happened in the life and death and Christians believe resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth that this group of Jews and then eventually Gentiles as well started to say, we've got to rethink everything we thought about God in light of this singular human life. So thinking about human beings as capable of bearing a divine image, that's a very counterintuitive idea in human history. Like a lot of human history says uh, the gods are unlike us or the gods are totally like us. (laughs) But very rarely in human history do we come up with this synthesis that is the Jewish and then Christian synthesis, which says, yes, God is quite different. And yet God became us. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah totally. And I'm just reflecting because in the Hebrew scriptures, the creation story is that God is creating out of nothing. Right. Now, humans obviously can't do that, but you would yes. also argue that there is a creative calling of humans as well. Right. You right. call it culture making. Right. What right. is that? So, you know, it is true that we don't create new stuff. Um, you know, we don't create new material or matter in a way. Matter and energy are, are interchangeable, but they're fixed in the universe. So they. So the physicists tell us. But what we do do as human beings is introduce form and a kind of order to the world that literally didn't exist until we do it. And this is what we do when we speak. So as you and I form sentences, especially as we do this together, that is you ask a question and I respond and then I ask kind of a follow up or, you know, I give you an opening. We are literally putting together ultimately sound waves in forms that have never existed before. <laughs> and in that sense, you know, the, the theological term for this is creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. We are groping our way towards an arrangement of matter, you could say, in this case, an arrangement ultimately of sound that our listeners are also interacting with that has never existed before. And this is not really something any other creature does in the same way. Now, other creatures make something of the world that they're in, but they don't do it with this kind of abundance of meaning and this incredible creative profusion of possibility that is inherent in everything human beings do. Most creatures have instinct. Some of it is inborn. Some of it's taught from parent you know, and family. Uh, but basically, the squirrels in my backyard do the same thing that squirrels have always done. And the rabbits do the same thing and so forth. And the human beings never like to do the same thing. The human <laughs> beings are always pressing towards the edge of the creative. And in that way, certainly from a Christian point of view, this is part of imaging the creator who said, I don't actually want just a, even a mechanical world that will just uh, repeat itself over and over. But I want a world that has, yes, has order, but also has abundance and therefore has a kind of a layer of possibleness, a layer of possibility that then I'm going to let other creatures fill that. That's such a crazy idea, again, and only human beings in the world as best as we can tell, like fully take that to the limit. These days, Andy is with an organization called Praxis Labs, where he works with entrepreneurs to start businesses or create some initiative in the world. It's as though Andy wrote the book on culture making and wound up creating himself a new job in the process. Creating is an adventure and creating a new business or a new nonprofit is definitely an adventure and it's a risk. And because uh, we work with people who are doing this out of a sense of Christian faith, that is, they, they have a kind of vision of, of what's broken in the world and what needs to be restored in the world. It is really living out this thing that I wrote about in culture making, which is why aren't Christians more known as people who actually make something beautiful and new? Why aren't we known for that? I don't think we're well enough known for that. And maybe we don't deserve to be well known for that until we actually try it. And now we've got 220 companies in the world that are actually trying it in every sector. Like literally, I don't think you could name an economic sector or a sector of society that we don't have former Praxis fellows uh, who are now building businesses, building nonprofits that address these different dimensions of being human. Well, can you give us one example of that? Just to, <laughs> I know that, um, you know, there's probably so many that you could choose from. Yeah. Uh, I love the example of Ionicare, which is uh, founded by a serial entrepreneur that we've worked with over the years named Jessica Kim. She's founded several different companies. But this one is a very beautiful, powerful story in that it came out of losing... Uh, her own mother to cancer a few years ago. 
and providing a huge amount of care in their home to her mother and her father who moved moved in with them, her father being still living, um, and realizing, Jessica and her family realizing, that care at home is such an important part of flourishing for human beings at the end of life and at many stages of life. And the medical system, at least in the United States, and I think in most of the world, really does not account for the incredible importance of caregiving at home, right? We're good at caring for people in extreme cases in hospital or whatever, or in nursing homes, places where people maybe be cared for for a long time. But a great deal of care for people happens in their home. And most people wish that at the end of their life, they would be home and cared for by family. And there's very little support for the people who provide that. So Ionicare is a technology platform that helps a small community of friends come around someone who is giving care to someone with a chronic illness or an end-of-life illness. And there's all these things you need when you're trying to do that. I'm actually living through this with my sister with my own parents. And there's all these things you need, and it's very hard to know how to ask for the things you need. And your mm. neighbors and friends want to help, but they don't know necessarily how to help. And sometimes the things they offer to do to help aren't what you need. Yeah. And so Jessica and her team, um, her co-founder Stephen and, and the team that they built, have created this app uh, and platform that helps you identify what you need, find neighbors and friends who will step in and be part of the community of care so that caring is no longer this isolating experience. And Ionicare is spelled I-A-N-A, care, and, and it stands for I am not alone. Oh, wow. Which is quite powerful. She says that's the thing every caregiver most needs to hear. I am not yeah. alone. I think you're right. Christians aren't known for that kind of mm. um, culture making. In fact, Christians in public um, might more be known for things like culture war. <laughs> would you <sighs> say that's true? I would definitely say it's true that there is that perception. I'm not sure it's always fair, but I'm pretty sure it's not always inaccurate, right? So I would say I spend most of my time, frankly, with people who are fellow Christians because I work with Christian entrepreneurs and so forth. And I hardly ever encounter someone whose primary posture towards the world is conflict and dominance. But I also acknowledge that there are a lot of people out there who are pursuing that in the name of their faith. And I definitely agree it has become the dominant way our society at large understands the agenda of people who call themselves Christian. So this is a real thing. And of course, as someone who cares about creativity, there's nothing worse for creativity than war. Uh, war destroys. That's all it does. And sometimes we may come to believe that wars are just or necessary to restrain evil. But even so, war destroys. It's all it does. So the idea that Christians could ever be identified <laughs> with a realm of human endeavor that only shuts down possibility and that leaves damage in its wake is very distressing. And unfortunately, it's not totally ungrounded in some of what Christians pursue in the name of their faith. So I have to admit, we are known for that. Is there something to be said here about Christians kind of grappling with their shifting place, let's say, in the mainstream. So Completely. Christianity is no longer the establishment. It can't necessarily count on the welcome or even being assumed to be the norm right. even. Right. So is there something going on here? Is there an insecurity? Is there a way of, of having been powerful for so long and so <laughs> suddenly now there's an insecurity around we don't feel so powerful anymore? Completely, completely. And the one thing the, the state can do, that is uh, the nation state, 
that no one else can do is make people do things. <laughs> this is Max Weber, the sociologist, who says the state claims a, a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. The state is the only thing in society, unlike business, unlike media, unlike the church, certainly, that can tell you to do something and make you do it. And so there's this kind of intoxication, not just among people of any particular religious persuasion, but I think everyone is attracted to that in a way, especially when you feel threatened. Like, well, my neighbor may not like me, but if the state says they have to act this way or they have to respect me, then they, they have to. And nothing else can make them do that in the way the state can. In the parts of the U.S. I grew up in, Christianity was long gone as a, a vital unifying social force by the time I came of age. And I myself did not grow up in a practicing Christian home. But it was still the background. <laughs> and so it, it had already receded from the foreground, but it was still in the background. And now it's fading from the background. And when that starts to happen, it is, I think, quite natural to feel pretty disoriented and fearful. That's just a natural human thing. That would happen to anyone. That would happen if you were vegetarian and people started serving you only hot dogs. Like, you know, you would feel the same sense of, wait, 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 hold on. Isn't there another option? And then you grasp for power and specifically coercive power. If you can't get what you want through creative means, we tend to turn to coercive means. And there's no doubt uh, certain elements of the Christian community in the United States and other places under that threat of the background is fading out are like, well, maybe we need this other kind of power that we didn't even have to worry about in the past uh, because we it was just sort of in the, in the air, in the water. But now we've got to make sure the door is held open for what we believe and what we value. It's very hard to be human and not want that kind of coercion applied when you feel like you're in the minority. The other thing that goes on in entrenched conflicts is both sides have a really plausible account of how they're the minority. Yeah. So the truth <laughs> is I live in a very secular progressive part of the United States and, and I'm very glad to live there in many ways, even though I don't share all my neighbors' beliefs. But I will tell you, my neighbors feel just as threatened and in a minority in the United States as any conservative Christian in the South or Dallas, Texas feels. In other words, we're both able to tell a story that says, oh, we're the embattled minority who need access to the coercion. And both sides can persuade themselves. They can't persuade the other side, but they can persuade themselves. That's really who we are. We're the, the righteous few, and boy, we need the state to be on our side. Yeah. Every, everybody feels that way to an amazing extent in America right now. You're listening to Life and Faith, and we're hearing Andy Crouch grapple with culture making and our creative calling something that he says is for everyone, not just the creatives or the entrepreneurs among us. But right before the break, the conversation took a bit of a turn and we started to hear about coercive power. Now, this is the temptation for people who find themselves on the margins to seek a top-down form of power that takes a different approach to the culture-making that Andy's talking about. Yeah, I noted to Andy that we're very suspicious of power these mm. days. We basically assume that people who are powerful or powerful institutions are just going to abuse their advantage. They're out to get us. Yeah, that's right. But at the same time, his work on culture-making talks about power in the best possible sense. So even here, he had really surprising things to say. True power actually always involves, necessarily involves, an element of vulnerability in the sense that if I want to bring something into being in the world that will have any kind of life to it, maybe this doesn't apply if I'm like purely creating a machine. 
<laughs> I suppose machines, by definition almost, operate exactly the way you intend them to, and if you keep them oiled, they just keep working. But that's a very limited kind of thing. Most of the things we want to create in the world need to have life. They need to live on, even past our own lives. They need to keep informing how future generations imagine the world. And this is true whether you're writing a play or starting a business or writing a law, even. You know, the truth is you, you can't make a machine that will last and grow. Only living things do that. But the moment you create life, you take a risk. <laughs> so... All creative power, which I would see as the deepest form of power, involves an element of vulnerability. And certainly we see this in, in the biblical accounts of creation where God creates these image bearers, but then he gives them room to do what they may do in the world. Uh, that would be the first account where God gives them dominion over the world and says, now it's kind of yours to make something of. That's a risk in a certain sense. And then in the second account, which is in Genesis 2, God gives them room in the sense of literally absenting himself, if we can put it that way, from the garden, to give them room to make moral choices, uh, which happens with the temptation and all that. And that's just part of creating. That's part of power. What happens over time is you can start out very vulnerably creating and bringing something into being. But everybody, I would say, except the true God, <laughs> all the image bearers think, you know, it'd be really nice to have that without the vulnerability. And this is what happens with institutions. Institutions are extended acts of human creativity. They're human creativity that extends itself over time and often over space as well. And they start out with tremendous vulnerability and, and openness to possibility. But then the, the people who inherit those institutions often or the people who, who step into them at their moment of great success decide, oh, the thing I'd like to do with this is take some risk off the table. And so they we start- We can't jeopardize the profits sort of thing or we can't jeopardize what we've been doing. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Anytime you start saying, oh, we can't jeopardize that, what you are actually setting yourself up to do is become exploitative. And the other thing that happens is people leverage these acts of creativity for their own exploitive ends. So- you make a couple amazing films if you're a certain producer in Hollywood. And then you realize, oh, I now have the power to get access to forms of intimacy I don't deserve and haven't earned and was never meant for. But now I can. And if there is not accountability in that system, which is a form of vulnerability, accountability is vulnerability for the powerful, <laughs> it will get bent into exploitation. And this is true of every single institution, not just religious ones, not just, I mean, any institution ends up either protecting itself, which is actually comes at the cost of creativity and, and human flourishing, or giving certain powerful people access to exploitation they wouldn't have had otherwise. Those are the failure modes of all human making. And the only way, and it's not easy, that you avoid this is to keep vulnerability in the system. Vulnerability for the powerful in terms of accountability for how they use their power and vulnerability in terms of the risks the institution continues to take rather than just consolidating itself and saying, let's not jeopardize what we've got. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It's almost like we've been talking about the church, right? And in the way that it's um, yes. the, the sexual abuse scandals, etc. Exactly. Which, by the way, the sexual abuse scandals combined both. So you have individual actors who leverage the spiritual power entrusted to them for their own exploitive ends. But then you have the whole institution protecting itself. Yeah, that's right. It's both. It's, mm. it's, it's not just the individual actor. If there was just the individual actor and the institution was willing to be 
kind of vulnerable and risk-taking, you'd quickly find out that person and eject them from the system. What really makes it a scandal is the institutional protection and the unwillingness of the institution to be vulnerable, not just the individual abuser. You made a very sobering comment in one of your books saying that by the third generation, all (laughs) institutions fail. You would know that trust in institutions is at historically very low low. levels, not just in America, but across the West, really. So how to redeem that, how to come back Mm. from that? Yes, I feel like it's a a fairly empirically demonstrable reality that even the things that start out the best, by the third generation, something's gone pretty deeply wrong. (laughs) In the United States, just to give an example, by way of getting to your question of how do you come back from it, you know, we have this founding narrative in the United States that centers around the revolution and the writing of the U.S. Constitution and this moment of great creativity in the realm of politics. And whatever you think of the revolution, <laughs> it was a moment of great creativity and, and a lot of good impulses and instincts that are rightly celebrated, at least I would say so as an American. But there was also a fault line in it, which was that the founders did not address the fact that uh, many of our states enslaved human beings. And we wrote into our constitution a compromise that just kind of papered over that and made it kind of sort of work. And at the third generation, that compromise becomes untenable because of the fundamental injustice of slavery and also the political dynamics of the institution. And it was all built in from day one, but it takes three generations to play out. And so we end up with a terrible civil war in the United States. And you ask, how do you come back from that? And there's no template or formula, but there is this kind of astonishing, I guess the word I want to use is grace in history that sometimes at the right time arises, sometimes even an individual leader, but really always leaders have to have communities that rise to the occasion and offer a kind of reconciliation that fully deals with the failure. That is, it doesn't paper it over in the way institutions want to often. It fully deals with it and offers a way forward. And in the U.S., we were very fortunate to have this president, Abraham Lincoln, who, not a perfect man, uh, as if anyone is, but who brought some unique abilities to, he gave this incredible second inaugural address as our civil war was coming to its climax, that was not a kind of declaration of total victory. And it was instead this incredibly humble, it's one of the most amazing documents in American history, because he very humbly says, both sides prayed to God, neither side had their prayers fully answered, neither side can fully say God was on their side. And he's saying this as the one prosecuting the war on Mm. behalf of the Union. And instead, it's this humble, hopeful address that calls for us on the other side of war to recognize the better angels of one another's nature and re-knit the republic. Yeah. And then you have, not to get too much into U.S. history, you know, you've got the kind of attempt at reconstruction after the Civil War. That creates this kind of new settlement, but it has these fault lines that lead to this thing called Jim Crow, which are these segregation laws. And then arises this leader named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who brings to the attention of the nation the, the third generation happens again, basically. Mm. But he also has this incredible unifying vision. Now, we are now basically three generations after that civil rights movement. And what are we seeing? We're seeing the failure modes of the institution three generations later. We're seeing these great outpourings of lament and outrage at the things that are still not fixed, even though we've made so much progress indisputably. But there are things. The institution is failing in another way. 
And the thing is, when you're in the midst of that third generation crisis, you have no idea how it's going to resolve. There's no template. There's no formula. But the grace is very often someone arises to offer a reconciling way. Anyone that you can spot on the horizon that might <laughs> be that person for this generation? No, I could not tell you. And I don't think we're guaranteed it. Um, I think we're in the third generation crisis yeah. still. We're not in the fourth generation grace, frankly. Mm. But there's better and worse ways to go through the crisis. We often dream if my enemies would just get what's coming to them, then the world would be right. I think that's actually not true. Yes, it is true that the unjust need to be you know, taken from their seats of exploitation and held to account. But actually what I need to have the world I want is for even my enemies <laughs> to be restored. And if I only get the vengeance I want, I won't actually get the world that I should want, at yeah. least. To believe that and to act on that is what the great, it's, it's what Nelson Mandela did at the ending of apartheid in South Africa, because that happened when I was a young man. And when I was a teenager, you would never have been able to persuade me that apartheid would end in South Africa without horrific violence akin to the U.S. Civil War. And it really only happened because a man who had been at the heart of a, of a civil insurrection um, through the ANC came to believe that there was no future for his country without, yes, absolutely truth, but also reconciliation. Mm. That's amazing. And where did he come from? He came from prison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from 15 years on Robben Island. And you just can't, you don't know until the moment who that person is and what they're going to bring to the moment. Let me ask you about another person who you would call a significant culture maker. In some of your books, you've reflected on Jesus washing the disciples' feet, but also his death on the cross as culture-making moments. You know, is there something here for how, when you're looking for these figures who change things, they can come mm. from unexpected places, like Nelson Mandela comes from the prison. Yeah. Um, is there something to say about... The, the flip that Jesus executes in those moments, right, where power and influence is not where you would imagine right. it is. It's actually in more discreet, even hidden places, and sometimes even degraded places, if you think of the cross. Mm -hmm. I almost think it's the creative, or I think really here we're talking about restorative power, you know. So there's a creative element to restoration, because it's never just rewind to the way things were. But it's something's gotten really broken. What kind of power can handle that? I almost think that always has to come from a hidden place. I don't think it ever comes from the seat of power. When you occupy the seat of power, you got too many interests to protect, not just your own. And some of them are legitimate interests. The real reconciling power in history always comes from very unexpected places that are very proximate, frankly, to suffering. And this can be intensely personal. That is, it can be just someone whose own life path has taken them through a really deep valley. It can be a literal neighborhood that everyone says, how can anything good come from that place? It can be from the prison. It can be from the, you know, the, uh, the ward of the hospital. Um, at least this is the Christian view. There's this element of sacrifice <laughs> that is somehow bound up with the restoration of things. And only people who have been to the extremes know how much it costs. And I just think that's always where the restoration comes from. 
which is very sobering because, frankly, I, many people who will be listening, and you and I, the truth is we have lived relatively insulated lives. Mm. I mean, just realistically, compared to our neighbors on this planet, you know? And so if we really want to be part of whatever's past the next civil war, past the next great cataclysm, the next great institutional failure, if we really want to be part of the creative story, it means we have to go to places we would not choose to go. But the testimony of the Christian faith is actually there's grace there that you're not going to find anywhere else. And you can actually go there. This is what Jesus does. You know, everyone, all of his followers think he's there to establish coercive force so that the minority of the Jews can enjoy the peace of the empire. And he's like, no, I'm going to go to the garbage dump, which is where they did the crucifixions. I'm going to go to the most unlikely place, the worst possible place. And that's actually where restoration is going to spring from. You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. Yes, and I hope you've enjoyed just that taste of the riches in store for you if you ever wanted to check out more of Andy Crouch's work. And of course you do, because it's great. My favourites in order, just in case you were wondering. Uh, Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. That's my favourite. Then there's Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World, and Strong and Weak, Embracing a Life of Love, Risk and True Flourishing. I'm going to link to all of those in the show notes, even though I've already regretted the way that I've ordered them because I love all of them, really. And don't forget, you can also catch up on Andy's lecture on technology on the Richard Johnson Lecture podcast. Next week. We've understood what a massive deluge we're under in terms of communication from a consumer culture. So one way to begin to resist that is to limit its access in your life and to limit your own exposure to it. The other way is to by continually cultivating alternate frames of reference. So another decision that we've made is to live in poorer suburbs. And that helps you maintain a very different perspective on life.